Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, it's so good to be with you. Thank you, Pastor Linda, and uh, it's great to worship. Great to worship with you. And there's sometimes when you're in church, you felt it, right, where you're like. How does, how does she know? Has she been like reading my email this week? Like, you know, it feels like the preacher's talking right to you. And uh, some days are just like that. And I, I feel that this morning. And I, I appreciate being a part of just this family and being ministered to. I'd like to preach this morning. You know, I, I, as I was coming the last uh, few times, I'm traveling a lot in February and March, so I haven't always been here on Sunday mornings and stuff, but the last few times I was here in January and back in uh, 2015, I was preaching on the book of 1 Timothy, and I was so blessed by Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy. I had uh, so much uh, just personal enrichment from that, and I felt my spirit closer drawn to God, and I thought, you know, I would love to do something like that again. I thought, Lord, if only there were some sequel to first timothy if only there was some follow-up book that we could turn to that was like first timothy but like later and you know it's the darndest thing there's actually a letter second timothy the messiah strikes back if um, it's not subtitled i think that's the niv the the point is, if you will turn with me to 2 Timothy, God willing, I'll be with you again on March the 6th, and so I've got a little mini-series on 2 Timothy following up, and so as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we'll be in verse 8. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1, before I read 8 through 12, as you're turning there, I'll have the verses up here on the screen, just going to give you a little bit of background. If you remember from, if you were here, if you're new to all this, by the way, welcome. If you were here, you may remember Timothy was like a protege of a pastor named Paul. Now, Paul was a guy who wanted to plant churches. That means, you know, get them started up. Then he wanted to hand them off because God had called him to continue going from city to city and proclaiming the gospel to people who had never heard. And what was that gospel he was proclaiming? It was crazy. It was this concept that blew his mind and he knew would blow everybody's mind that God and all the Jews, Paul was originally a Jew, they all believed in God, that God would send Messiah. So far that wasn't crazy. But that God's Messiah had come and it was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who got hung on a cross, which again, crazy, God's Messiah, just like Pastor Linda put it so beautifully, God's Messiah, the one thing, I mean, the rug of reality was ripped under the disciples' feet. Because the one thing we know about Messiah is he wouldn't die in, you know, this ignoble death on a cross. That guy actually rose from the dead, and, and in doing so, that God's promised Messiah, God not only saved the people of Israel, but God promised Abraham that he was going to bless the whole world through the people of Israel, and, and, and Messiah's death on the cross His arms were nailed open on the cross as if to say this good news of salvation is not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentile people together that God wants to build this family from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. That blew Paul's mind. And uh, if you know anything about the letter of 1 Timothy, you know that he he did not always start out uh, as a Christian by any means. He was born this Jew. He was raised as a Pharisee, trained in the law. His name was Saul. And Saul was actually worried that this group of 
Ah, they call themselves like Messiah followers. In Greek, the word for Messiah is Christ. And so they had this nickname, you know, little Christ, Christians, Christians. And so he sniffed out these Christians and solved them as a cult. And he's like, we got, these, these people are cult followers and we got we to gotta snuff them out. So he was on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians, to just silence them. I don't know that he was going to necessarily have them killed, but he was certainly going to have them roughed up a little. He's on his way to Damascus as basically going from town to town. I mean, that's, I'm not trying to oversell it, but he's sort of a religious terrorist, right? This is Osama bin Saul. He's making his way to persecute more Christians, and you know the story. There at the Damascus off-ramp, right next to the Exxon and La Quinta and the Denny's, right there. Uh, in Damascus, they all would have known it by the number. Yeah, 54. I live, anyway, they, they get off that, that off-ramp, and there, the uh, untamable tiger Saul met the line of Judah Jesus, and there's the risen Jesus going, Saul, why are you coming after me? Why are you persecuting me? He's like, I, 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 you're Jesus of Nazareth. You're risen and walking around. I'm not coming after you. I'm coming after your your." followers wait a minute if you're risen and you're walking around then that means the messiah who died on the cross you really did rise again and then it all sort of clicks and the minute paul can finally see the minute his eyes are open he becomes blind there's probably a sermon in there i don't have time to preach but that happens to a lot of people right jesus even said those who are blind man they're the ones who can see when he heals that dude in john 9 but the point is uh the minute he finally his eyes are open he becomes blind and saul is never the same and he never forgets that day and uh, he begins preaching. Long story short, it's not, his message is not real popular with the Jews. It's, it, the Romans don't really care as long as everybody stays quiet. But every time Paul goes to a town, there's a riot. So eventually he attracts the, uh, the attention of the Roman authorities. Probably could have gotten off the hook by playing the I'm a citizen card. But instead, every time he's on trial, he's like, oh, y'all going to listen to me? Yeah. And y'all are gathered from everywhere? Yeah. All right, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel, you know what I mean? So instead, he won't save himself. He continues to have this boldness, and because of that, uh, he gets thrown in jail. They don't really know what to do, him, do with him, you know, whatever. But then an emperor comes to power named Nero. You've probably heard of Nero. Right around 60 AD, Paul writes 1 Timothy. He goes back in prison, and this time it's no good. Nero, uh, if you've heard, he hates Christians. In fact, to, to consolidate his power, he realized nothing unites us like a common enemy. You know what I mean? And uh, so he says, if I can make all of Rome hate Christians, so he even burns parts of Rome and blames it on the Christians just so he can say, see, see, right? So he's got Paul, this like captain Christian, you know, thrown in prison. uh, And uh, this time he's just awaiting sentence. His first sort of, you know, trial where you get character witnesses, you get all that stuff. um, No one was there to stand with him. And now he's back in jail and all he's really waiting is the sentencing. He is uh, probably, if you think about Nero, he's the one with the martyrs and the throwing to the lion and all that stuff. Uh, he probably won't be thrown to the lions or uh, he won't be crucified because he's a Roman citizen. He'll, his death will be by beheading. But he knows, ponder this, Paul is sitting in some dismal underground dungeon, Nero's prisoner, with a hole, a small hole in the ceiling for light and air, mud floor, imagine stifling heat in the summer, unimaginably cold in the winter. No doubt, uh, uh, miserable and, and in, I mean, in miserable conditions. And so we have, what you're about to read is Paul's last letter. He's writing this, or maybe he's, you know, talking it out, and Luke, who eventually found him, the faithful physician Luke, found him and dictated it and, and, and wrote it. Either way, this is his last letter, 
of a man who the next time somebody comes to that prison door, the next time somebody says, Paul, it's time to go, it's the man who leads him to his execution. That's the next time he steps out into the free world will be on his march to the beheader. It's intensely personal letter to this young protege, Timothy, and it's sort of this last will and testament to the church. And you just like, by the time you get to the end of it, you're just crying because you think about this great man of faith and what he's done. I fought, you, you, you know, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I mean, this amazing thing. And uh, as you read the letter, what always strikes me in 2 Timothy is not what's in here. What always strikes me is what's missing. And here's what's missing. Where's the whining? Where's the self-pity? Like not even one verse. I mean, there's a lot of verses in here. You could have thrown one little, you know, I do all this for God and nothing for old Paul, right? Where's that? Where's the, I'm, he's in jail, not for doing something wrong. He's in jail for doing right. He's following the will of God and he's alone. He's languishing in a dark, dank, mud floor dungeon, stinky, cold, nothing to do, nothing to look at. He left his iPad back in Troas, dis- deserted by his friends, hated by his enemies. And he's about to see his life's work handed over to a preacher who is way too young. Well, he's got this milk toast immune system, apparently way too timid to be ready, and there's no whining. Instead, there's this encouragement and this charge to not be ashamed. Look, look, here we go. In fact, I'll read it, and then I'll go back verse by verse. Start in verse 8, and let's read about four verses. Therefore, he talks to Timothy, grace, mercy to you, man. I remember your mom. I remember your grandma. It's like this, this legacy of faith has been passing down. Oh, buddy, fan the flame. You know, fan it into flame, this gift of God. Therefore, verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed i'm just going to put a pause right there i am not ashamed that's the message of today's sermon being ashamed unashamed if you had to title the sermon it would be titled unashamed first Tim- i mean second timothy chapter one unashamed let's go back verse by verse second timothy chapter one verse eight therefore be not ashamed do not be ashamed of the testimony about our lord if you're a note taker today's your day because I know sometimes when you take notes, when I preach, it's like, I just colored an alien. You know, I got three points, okay? And you can write them down. Unashamed is the title. Write down point one, why it's so easy to feel ashamed. Give yourself a little space. Point two, why it's so wrong to be ashamed. It's like criminal that we would be ashamed. And number three, how do we not be ashamed? Got it? Why it's so easy to feel ashamed. Why it's so wrong to be ashamed. And okay, how do we do it? How do we not be ashamed? Pretty simple structure, right? That's the skeleton. There we go. So let's start with why it's so easy to feel ashamed. Why would Paul write this? I love it because we are not the first Christians in the world to struggle with feeling ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps you've been there. Someone asks you about your faith. Someone asks you about even just going to church. And you sort of stare down at your feet and kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, religion and politics. They say don't talk about that, you know. And there's a thin line between just sort of trying to be tactful and just downright being 
being ashamed of what we believe. For Paul and Timothy, let's start with them and then let's move to us. For guys back in the day, Paul and Timothy, we can see the cause of their shame pretty, pretty easily. Why, why it would have been so easy for they, them to be ashamed? Why Paul would have to write to Timothy, yo, kid, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why would that be a threat? Why would that be a problem? Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And it's simple. It's, it's, uh, uh, his audience was either going to be Jews or it was going to be Gentiles. And the message of the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was absolute foolishness to the Gentiles. Where did I get that? First, Timothy, uh, First Corinthians chapter 1. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. By the way, they divided the world into Jews and everybody else, Gentiles. So he's saying, of every human, we can't win. We will either be a stumbling block or folly. I can explain that. To the Jewish people, the story goes like this. So yeah, Messiah, yeah, that's God's anointed. That's right. Uh, let me finish. Messiah came to earth. Oh, sweet. Talk to me, man. When is Messiah coming? Because when Messiah comes, he is going to crush the enemies under our feet. Jews are finally going to be put back on top. We are God's chosen people. What, what? And when he comes, here's the one promise we have about Messiah. Well, I mean, we got some prophecies. He's going to be from, from David, right, of the lineage of David, because the greatest shepherd Israel's ever had was David. So he's going to be like David. In fact, he's going to be born in the, da- in the David town, Bethlehem. And of course, that couldn't be Jesus, because he's born in Nazareth, right? And that's like they're all getting their Wikipedia data. And somebody finally is like, you know, he had to register in Bethlehem. So he actually was born in the house of David. Mic drop. But they didn't have time for all that. They're just trying to piece all this together, right? So they're talking it through. And they're like, here's the one thing we know about Messiah. Okay, David. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We've had all these dudes that were good shepherds. But when Messiah comes, when I mean real Messiah comes, here's the difference. His kingdom will know no end. And Messiah is God's anointed. He has God's power. So the one thing we know about Messiah is he won't die. Yeah, well, let me finish. Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Okay, well, what happened? Did he become king? Did he become Caesar? Did he become... Actually, he was crucified on a Roman cross. We're done here. Why? Look, dude, the one thing we know about Messiah is he's not going to... Deuteronomy says everyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed. God's anointed would not hang upon a Roman tree called a cross. I'm sorry, he can't be the Messiah. And that's why the Jews, everything was simply the resurrection. Yes, you you start to realize he was cursed. He was sins cursed. He rose again. But if you didn't get time to explain all that, before you even got your foot in the door to try to explain all that, which might make sense to modern Christians, to them it's like, I'm sorry, that's just a stumbling block. You lost me at the cross. That's all. A stumbling block. Now, to the Gentiles, philosophers, sophisticated Greeks, you know, let me get this straight. Your philosophy of everything is what now? that a backwoods Jewish peasant was martyred and that ripped history in half. <laughs> I mean, that's just like that nonsense. You know what I mean? To them, it's like, it's, it's foolishness. What in the world would a backwoods, you know, from this tiny religion, what would that have to do with any of us? So you're either, you, you can't win. It's either a stumbling block to one audience or it is foolishness to the other. Now, let's fast forward to today. Where it is either a stumbling block to the religious or foolishness to other people. Like, it's the exact same thing. We don't call them Jews and Gentiles necessarily, but watch this. There's two ways to be lost. Religiously separated from God or irreligiously separated from God. Religious people don't like the message of the cross because it's like, actually, you can't save yourself. What? I'm moral. I'm, you know, I'm a good Muslim. I pray five times a day. Or I'm, I, you know, I'm a faithful person. Or I'm, I'm, you know, you can be very religious and completely lost. And in this case, the cross is very offensive, right? Actually, you can't save yourself. You need the mercy of God. You're a wretched sinner. Or it's foolishness. 
I believe we all just get a, gotta get along. You don't need God for that. I don't even believe in God. Oh, actually, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's either religious loss or secular loss. It's not that different. And that's why we've been there. An opportunity comes up at work to talk about Christ, to bear witness to Christ, and we shrink away. We're supposed to, in that moment, like, you sort of see it coming a mile away. Anybody ever been there? Your palms start sweating. They're like, yeah, you know, and they start talking about religion. Then it gets to church. And then it's like, you know, they're kind of in the break room munching on a donut. Hey, you go to church, don't you? What do you think of all this? And you're like, think we should call Pastor Joe or like mm, see what he says you know what I mean? I've been there I've been there now let me tell you uh, something I'm not proud of I am a I am a preacher okay I'm a minister of the gospel I don't do anything else it's in a side gig you know I'm a professional Christian <laughs> I'm on the elevator and uh, in my building there's seven flights and the elevator is so slow so we've had so many embarrassing moments on the elevator because it never ends. Because once something is said, you know, somebody gets on and your four-year-old goes, wow, she big girl, you know. Please let this elevator ride end, you know. But I remember getting on one time. It's like, I see you here all the time. Like, you know, the lady was like, you got weird hours and everybody, you know, you're kind of coming in at weird time. Are you a teacher? Like, what do you do? And I know it's like, well, I'm a Christian minister. It's like, I don't, maybe I just, I don't know what to expect. Maybe I'm just too cynical or whatever. But suddenly, either one of two things happen. Either it's like, you know what, I'm going to get off on four. You know, and they just like exit. Or it's, oh, you know, sound the elevator alarm, slam it mid-floor, let's talk. So here's every experience I've ever had with church, God, or a minister throughout my whole life. And clearly, you want to hear all this. You know what I mean, right? Now, speak on behalf of every Christian throughout time and eternity. Be their spokesperson. And, you know, whatever. So I'm just like, uh, and it was a, a moment of weakness, and I, um, I didn't, uh, uh, obviously, if I could have this moment back, I would have done different, but I was just so tired. I just wanted to go home, and she was like, what do you do? I was like, I'm like a, like a speaker. I go around. <laughs> I know, right? And you just imagine Jesus like, for real? Oh, because I died to save Tom the preacher and call him to ministry. I don't know. I don't even I don't know Tom, no speaker now, right? I'm so ashamed of that. Like, I have begged God's forgiveness for that moment. And that may be a silly thing, but it's not to my heart. I was ashamed. First Timothy, I mean, 2 Timothy 1.8. This verse is for me. I had a chance to step up, and I shrunk back. Because what, I'm afraid of awkwardness? My whole life is awkwardness. Why would I be ashamed of that moment of awkwardness? People feel shame or embarrassment, I think, partly too, because it's like if people find out you're a Christian at work, you got to, like, act better. <laughs> right? A lot of people, it's like, I, I, I don't want to talk about it because I don't know if my life backs it up. It's our behavior. Quite frankly, I don't feel like a very good Christian. So are you a Christian? Uh, I'm like a renegade Christian. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, uh, in our day and age, too, uh, where does shame and embarrassment come from? Did, I, I believe that shame and embarrassment come from when people cross societal norms. Right? As long as whatever you're doing matches what is normal, right? you're good to go. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. right? Stuff can be totally cool, not weird, you know, it just nothing wrong with it, harmless. But it's outside the norm. It's like you'd be ashamed about it, you know what I mean? 
Like if you came to church and everybody found out that like you, uh, I don't know, you, you, were in, you, <laughs> you were into unicycling, you know, dressed up as a clown while playing a one-man band and there's like 40 of you in the country and you travel around and you have this hobby or whatever and like one day you forget to take your clown makeup off and you know whatever and everybody's like, what do you do? That's not, that, I just, that's why we don't think of examples on the fly. The point is... It's just like, it's not wrong, it's just weird. And you're outside, society has determined that that's not, that's not right. Bicycles should have two wheels and, you know, we shouldn't. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, you got cross societal norms. Isn't it something, um, on a serious example, 50 years ago, right, where did shame come from? Shame, uh, a person had same-sex attraction. There'd be great shame in sharing that because it was outside societal norms. Fast forward today, okay, Interestingly, there's not shame in coming out of the closet, so to speak, that way. You know, what, you, know what's, you know what's outside of our bounds now? You judgmental? You intolerant? Anything that even hints of that is outside of societal norms. So watch this. I believe modern evangelical Christians, it almost feels like they're coming out of the closet. Hey, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. That took a lot of courage to say that. Why? You've got to come out of the closet. You're, 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 you're outside of so- what his society has now determined. That's not normal. To be, to be, come on, really? Yo, this book so long ago, that's not normal. See that? And so we feel shame, we feel embarrassment. And now uh, we're, in, uh, we're in that mode. And that can be a cause of shame. And when people know you're a, go- well, you're, you're a gospel-believing disciple of Jesus, there's a high likelihood that you will suffer for it. On a practical note, you may not, you know, you start being the Bible-toting born again, those promotions look a lot easier when somebody who's a little more normal, just a little more like chill about the whole thing, right? You might suffer for that. What is the link between the gospel and suffering? What is there about the gospel to hate and oppose so much? It can't be. Why are those who are so bold for the gospel, why do they suffer? It can't be just because, well, what you preach is a very narrow way. And I found the words of John Stott very perceptive. Listen to this. He wrote, God saves sinners. Talking about why do people hate the gospel so much? Why, Why would there be such animosity toward Christians? He thinks it's in our theology. God saves sinners in virtue of his own purpose and grace, not in virtue of our good works. It's the undeserved freeness of the gospel which offends. See, people who don't understand, if you're not born again and you're not in all this, you hate to have to admit the gravity of your sin and guilt, your complete helplessness to save yourself, the indispensable necessity of God's grace and Christ's sin-bearing death to save us. And therefore, I hate to admit my inescapable indebtedness to the cross. Do you follow that? I just don't want, quite frankly, the the song says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's something in my pride that goes, Hey, whoa, 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 wretches are other people. You're a good dude. And I have to to lay that down if I'm going to follow Jesus. So it's uh, not, you are not the first Christian. If you felt ashamed, safe place, you know, I don't judge you. I don't judge you. 2 Timothy 1 says, Paul's giving us some advice because he knows. Uh, I don't have time to preach a sermon on this. Uh, therefore, do not be ashamed of testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. I'll just point out one little word. Uh, Paul was in Nero's dungeon, but he knew he was God's prisoner. Isn't that cool? 
He didn't say, don't be ashamed of me. I'm Rome's prisoner. He said, nah, man. Nero looks powerful, but if I'm here, it's because of the will of the Almighty. And so at the end of the day, I'm his prisoner. And I'm his. Whether I'm in a church or I'm in a dungeon, I belong to Jesus. That's, that's hard, uh, hard won over a lifetime of suffering. Why is it so wrong to be ashamed? Nothing like a sermon on being ashamed that then makes you feel ashamed about being ashamed. But here we go. Here's why it's so, it's just criminal that we would be ashamed. For one thing, we're not spreading, we're spreading a great gospel. We're spreading good news, right? We're not spreading a virus. This is the gospel. Look at what he said. This, and then he sums up. Here's why we can't be ashamed. Look, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, where he says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God so that nobody could boast. Nobody could be like, look what I did to be saved. Hey, all y'all are lucky to be rescued by Jesus, but me and the man upstairs, he's lucky to have a guy like me on his team, right? People try to explain salvation like a rescue. That's a good start to the metaphor. But if you think, if anybody in here thinks that salvation works like this, you were drowning And you were swirling around in the drowning deep of sin and wretchedness. And as you were swirling around, you know, at the last minute, the nail-scarred hand of Jesus, as Satan was pulling you down into the deep, the nail-scarred hand of Jesus reached out to rescue you. And you put your hand in that nail-scarred hand and were pulled to victory. That's actually not exactly how it went down. You were swirling in the deep, dark, sins and the depths satan is pulling you down to eternal hell and separation from god you are helpless you are hopeless and sure enough with your last breath you come above the water and sure enough that nail scarred hand of jesus reaches out to you and you bit it and spit on him and fought it off right that that is what happened uh he then apparently fought harder and grabbed you, kicking and screaming, get off me, right? And pulled you into the gates of heaven and glory, right? Now, who's the hero of that story? It ain't me. I bit the hand that fed me. And if anybody here doesn't believe me, just look at your life. When did you get saved? Have you sinned since? If you have, you've bit the hand that fed you. You've been dragged, kicking and screaming. And that's what Paul means by Ephesians 2. He goes... The reason this story is by grace is so no one can boast. No one can be like, well, God saved 90... Listen, when it comes to salvation, God did like 95% of the work. But I did 5%, right? I met him halfway, right? The reason that's so important is this. If you did 5% of your salvation, then for the rest of your life, God could ask of you 95% of your heart and soul, but there'd always be 5% that just belongs to you. But if God saved 100% of you, then 100% of you belongs to God. And we're all his. You see? That's why that dangerous theology begins to creep in. And he says, no, that's not the reality. The reality is we were saved by grace. There is no bragging on what you did. It's what God did. He chose us when you were in sin. When God should have looked at me and said, I'm ashamed of you, Tom. Instead, he saved us. And not just, it's not like God invented this plan. He wasn't making it up as he went along. Look at what this verse says. Which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Were we to trace the source of the river of salvation, were we to trace it back to its source, we would have to look beyond time into eternity. 
That's where salvation's plan was drawn up in the heart of God. And now he's shown up, right? So Jesus has shown up. That's what he means by verse 10. Now it's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Messiah Jesus, who did what? Abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolish death. Just want to talk about this quickly. The Bible speaks of death. It can be a little confusing because you're reading through there and you're like, the wages of sin is death, but I didn't die. And then the serpent tells them like, you won't die. And yet when they ate of the fruit, they did die, but they didn't die just then. Death is used in three different ways in the Bible. And if you're not clear on this, it can be confusing. So if you know all this, it won't hurt you. But if you're new to this, this will be really helpful for you. There's, the Bible speaks of three, three ways when it talks about death. There is physical death. Physical death is when the soul is separated from the body. When the soul is separated from the body, you have physical death. That's why the Bible says, for a saint to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does that make sense? Right? So when the soul is separated from the body, that's how the Bible describes physical death. Uh, I remember, that's, that's not an, uh, such an obvious question as you might think. I remember being in college, it's like a Tuesday morning, it's rainy, and I'm in a philosophy class, and the discussion was, um, when do you go from life to death? Was it like cease of brain function? Is it like stopping the heart? It's like all these different things. And then as that started talking, they they started getting into like, well, how do you know what is a person? I mean, is a sentient being? Could a machine be a person? And I'll I'll never forget leaving that philosophy class going. When I walked in here this morning, I was certain I was alive. And I was a person. And now I don't know. Like, what, you know? So the Bible makes it very clear. When the soul is separated from the body, that's physical death. The Bible also talks about spiritual death. That's the separation of a soul from God. And eternal death is when both body and soul are eternally separated from God. Got it? So there's physical death, spiritual death, and then the second death or eternal death. And that's when body and soul are eternally separated from God. So how did Jesus bring life? Well, with physical death, It's been defanged for the Christian. That's the best verb I could think of. You still have to go through death as a Christian, but now death has lost its sting. It's like you're going to be bit by a cobra that has no fangs, just sort of a gummy cobra. Right? That's what it will be like. Death for the Christian will be like uh, when it was really dark and stormy night, for the little girl way back in the days and she's traveling home uh, with her father who lives in the Alps and they're going back to see mama and there's, you know, a warm supper waiting but it's dark and it's rainy and it's stormy and then it's lightning and it's scary and they have to cross this rickety bridge, right? And the girl's so scared and the dad picks her up and it's raining and he's walking and he's walking and when she wakes up, she's in her bed. It's the next morning. It's soft and cozy and warm. So what happened? And dad says, you fell asleep in my arms and I carried you across that scary bridge and when you woke up, you were home. That's physical death for the Christian. Close your eyes to be, to be absent from the body instantly, present with the Lord. Present with the Lord, with Jesus in this sort of waiting room going and Jesus is like, and you're like, now Jesus? Hold on, not yet. Now? Not yet. All right, we're just going to keep praising then. Now? Not yet, man. Now, trumpet, resurrection, bodies. Okay, that's, good. That's, that's sort of a tutorial. So you're dead. Now what? Spiritual death. He put death. He, spiritual death, right? We've been born again. Eternal life has started now. And one day we're going to be reunited with a resurrection body forever and ever in the new heaven, new earth. 
And then eternal death has been undone because eternal life has begun right now. And now Paul says, I am one of the, whoops, I am one of the preachers and apostles and teachers of this good news, this gospel. Okay, so how? How do we overcome being ashamed? How is Paul able to say, but I am not ashamed for? what? So, okay, that's why we can't be ashamed. God, we are spreading the good news of new life and the chance at new life. It is easy to feel ashamed. Come on, we can't feel ashamed. So how? I mean, great message, but like how do we overcome shame? What's going to change tomorrow when you go to work and somebody asks you, hey, what's this Lent thing? What are you, what are you praying about? How are you going to have an ability to talk about that boldly? Or you know the opportunities. I don't have to invent them for you. What's going to change? Here's what Paul says. Here's why I'm not ashamed. Because shame's not going to help. You're, you're not going to overcome shame by feeling ashamed that you're ashamed. Heaping shame upon shame is not an effective strategy. You can't overcome shame by just knowing a lot of facts and content. Well, see, if I memorized the Bible, then I wouldn't be ashamed because I would just like school them on my religious knowledge. And then as they're feeling, you know, weak and, and beaten by my brain, you cannot overcome shame by having more confidence. Paul says, here's his secret. Paul says, I am not ashamed for, and those of you that know your Bibles, will, this will sound familiar, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. I know him. He does not say, for I know my religion forwards and backwards. He says, I know him. Paul knows him. Do you know him this morning? Paul never got over the day that when he was breathing out threats and murder against God's own people, God rescued him. He never forgot that day. He knows him. And that's why in Philippians chapter 3, he started thinking about his life without grace. And he said, you know, honestly, I think about everything I had, all my trophy case of good deeds. And he says, I consider it rubbish. I had all this good stuff that the world would say be proud of, but I consider it garbage. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but a righteousness from God that is through faith, for whom I, faith in Jesus, that I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them garbage, that I may know him him and the power of his resurrection sharing in his sufferings that i may somehow by any means attain the resurrection of the dead he said i just want to know him i want to know him i want to stand so close to his glory that i I know him that when i come away from him like like you get close to a fire you still feel the warmth on your cheek that's how close i want to be to god i want to know him and when you know somebody it doesn't matter what anybody says about him you know him If tomorrow a news reporter breaks a story about somebody you know, you say, I don't care what the news says. I know this person. I know them. And we defend those that we know. We know them. We don't just know about them. We know them. You can't help speaking about the one you know and love. I talk about my kids all the time. It's effortless. You are not ashamed of your kids. For the most part. (laughs) I'm not either. You talk about them. Why? Because you know them. You love them. I got to give credit where credit is due. And if you told me 10 years ago that I would preach a sermon that mentioned this guy, let me tell you something right now. I don't know if we got any believers up in here, but Justin Bieber. I got a lot of young people in my church. They're like, Tom, you need to check this out. They're sending me links. They're sending me links. My man's going around the country right now. And I don't know what happened to this kid. 
Justin Bieber's going around the country right now, and it's hilarious to watch. Radio DJs are like, yeah, we really want to talk about your music. Yeah, well, I really want to talk about God, you know, because I'm not trying to be like all preachy, but if you love somebody, you want to talk about them, right? Well, I'm kind of on this thing where I think, man, I'm not judging anybody, but I think God's changed my life. And, he's talking, and they're like, okay, can we get back to the music? He's like, well, we can, but what I really want to talk about, it's hilarious to watch these DJs squirm, and I'm like, my man, Justin Bieber, 116, like putting it down unashamed. I can't believe it. If, if you'd ever told me, like, one day you're going to preach a sermon to a group of people, like, be like Justin Bieber. You know, th- that's insane. But that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm not ashamed, anybody who's not ashamed, to say, look, man, this is, this is what's on my heart. And he's willing to tell everybody about it. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not saying go home and get a bunch of albums and play them for your kids. Well, Pastor Thompson, holy moly, this is terrible. I don't know. I don't listen to his music. But I tell you, that stuff's pretty compelling. And I don't care where I find it or in what, in what avenue, if it doesn't come like a, in a religious package, I'm proud of him. And Paul, man, Paul doesn't just know Jesus. I do realize. Justin Bieber and Paul. Sorry. Paul didn't just know about Jesus. He knew him. You understand? He'd been in his presence. He knew him. And the way you're going to get to know Jesus, the way you're going to get to be unashamed is not like, I just got to study up. I just got to whatever. Listen, he loved you out of your shame. There is no need to be ashamed anymore. And the reason we cannot be ashamed is he bore that shame on the cross. The ultimate shame has already been born, has already been born by Jesus Christ, the lamb who suffered and died. He was crucified naked. He was crucified. If there's anything, that's the shame of it all, the scandal of it all. He bore that shame so that we would never have to. So that what? So that he can be trusted to guard what's been entrusted to me, the good news of the gospel. He's got me. He's got you. Tune our hearts, oh God, that we might know you. I don't want people just to try harder to be unashamed. I want us to lean into you and to know you. And I want our, I want our boldness to come almost accidentally, just in the overflow of our hearts that love you. I pray that I could be more bold. I pray you'd forgive me when I have not been bold. And that by your grace in the future, if I'm ever given a good opportunity to step right in, I would step right in and stand tall. And if I suffer, I would suffer. I would share in the sufferings. I would drink that cup of suffering with you. We have brothers and sisters around the world who are drinking a much more bitter cup of suffering than I will ever be forced to drink. So God, we pray for them. We pray for boldness pray that nothing, no scheme of man or power of hell would be able to stop the great work that you're doing and that as people know you, as they're drawn closer to you, that we would be a people who simply cannot help talking about what we've seen and heard. Whether we're given a massive national platform to get on a radio and talk to a DJ or whether it's in the break room at work, make us a people who are unashamed, a people who know power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.